All right, I'll invite you to take your Bibles and turn again to Luke 11. I have quite a bit to say this evening, uh, even though the exposition was all this morning and this evening is all application, it, it's, um, it's, we have quite a bit to say this evening, so we're going to dig right in to our time together, the light which is in thee. This morning, as we looked through Luke 11, verses 27 to 36, we saw this interaction between Jesus and particularly as we, we compared passages, the Pharisees and the, the, the scribes. And in this interaction, they said we would seek a sign. To which Jesus said, there will be no sign given, but the sign of the prophet Jonah. That as he was in the belly of a whale, the belly of a whale for three days and three nights, so too I will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. We talked about this, and then he went on and he talked about the queen of the south and of Jonah and and Nineveh. And how the queen of the south and Nineveh will rise up in condemnation against this generation who had a greater than Solomon, who had a greater than Jonah with them, and yet they did not believe. Their hearts were hard. There were plenty of signs, but they had their eyes closed. And that's what Jesus would say in verses um, 33, 34, 35, 36. No man lights a candle and hides it, but he puts it on a candlestick. Jesus saying, I am that light. I am, I am there. I'm for people to see. The problem is not that there's not enough light. The problem is not that there's not enough proof. But rather, he says, your eye is not single. Your eye is not clear. Your eye is evil. Your eye is obscured. You're closing your eyes, you're turning your head from the light so that you can't see. It's not that you can't see, it's that you won't see. And we exhorted ourselves just briefly this morning in this vein, are your eyes open? And we're going to actually come back to that very point this evening in our final point, but I'd like to lay a... a, a, a through in our application i'd like to lay a foundation some of what we talked about what we have talked about in sunday school over the past several weeks as we've spoken of sharing the gospel and the different ways that god reveals himself to mankind i'd like to start there this evening in our application and then we'll work our way from mankind to us and understand more particularly what this means for us and understand in a way that I, I fear I, I have not done a, a good enough job as I look through my notes. I've not done a, a, a good enough job of expressing this evening. But understanding in particular the danger that it is that it's not just the unbelieving world that can reject the truths of God's word and so walk in darkness. It's not just the unbelieving world. You and I if we reject elements of truth, can also walk in darkness. Not unto perdition, not unto damnation. But our eyes can be blinded to where we lose discernment. And we fail to see the truth. We, it's not simply because we have hardened our hearts to, to this truth of God. We walk down that path and we end up in a place of darkness. Much of the church today has walked down that path. And God forbid that we would as well. So our first application this evening, as we consider uh, what we talked about today, what Jesus taught about in Luke 11, verses 27 to 36, is this. Man has all the proof he needs and could possibly have that Jesus is Lord and Savior. The reason why people reject Christ is not because they don't have enough proof. It is not because there is not enough light. Jesus said, I am a candle and I am put on a candlestick and all who will seek me will find me. 
That's why he gave that candle illustration in verse 33. No man, when he had lighted a candle, put it in a secret place, neither on a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they which come in may see the light. All who come in, all who are willing to come through that door of understanding, who are willing to open their hearts and their minds to Christ, the light is there for them. We talked about it a little bit this morning. Jesus is not a Gnostic God. It is not a God of secret knowledge. He's not a God of secret knowledge. You don't have to become the 33rd degree of Christian before you can understand Christ. You don't have to climb up to the top of a hill and sit in a temple for 10 years meditating before you can understand Christ. You don't have to find transcendence. You don't have to do any of those things. Christ is there for those who seek Him. The Bible reveals three primary sources of divine revelation that he has given to this world. Creation, conscience, and the word of God. Creation, conscience, and the word of God. And I would like for us to review, those of you that were in Sunday school, this will be a little bit of a rehash, but we'll go a bit deeper and we'll look at more verses. I'd like for us to review these together. The first being creation. The Bible says in Psalm 19 verse 1, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. So this verse could not be much more plain, right? That the heavens, that the things that, that God has created declare his glory. But where we really find the rubber meeting the road on this is Romans chapter 1 verse 20. In Romans 1 verse 20, Paul writes, For the invisible things of him, that would be of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Paul says that in relation to the existence, but not just the existence of God, but also his power and his Godhead, his authority. No man has any excuse to say that they do not know, that they cannot know that God exists and that he has authority because creation clearly testifies to them. And notice the word uses here. The inspired word of God tells us that God's existence, his power, his authority are openly known to all men through creation. So that any man who rejects God's existence, his power or his Godhead does so not because he doesn't actually have evidence of God, but rather because he has willfully closed his eyes, darkened his heart or unwillfully been deceived by the God of this world. We'll talk about. Having his eyes blinded to the truth. That the eye that Jesus spoke of in Luke 11. If thine eye be single, thy whole body will be full of light. That that eye is not receiving light. There's a blindness there. That the eye is evil. It's unclear. It's tainted. It's diseased. So that the body is filled with darkness. A couple of weeks ago in our message when we spoke on insights into the spiritual battle from this last chunk in Luke 11, we shared 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. We also spoke about it this morning. Paul writes, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So there is this element of a man closing his eyes to the truth, of a man darkening his own heart to the truth, but then there is also the element of the God of this world, Satan, the system, and the world as it exists today, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, which are causing people, either through intimidation, indoctrination, or ignorance, to fall short of understanding God. 
Intimidation, indoctrination, or ignorance bringing men, uh, uh, calling men away from the truth and seeking to make them confident in a rejection of their creator. You know, many people just don't know that there's another way. Many people just don't know that there's a better way. Many people have not been introduced to the solution. There are many, particularly in the West, who have simply closed their eyes. Churches are out there, the work is being done, and they've closed their eyes. But there are so many who have just not heard. The God of this world has blinded their eyes. Godless society is active in encouraging people away from the truths of God's word because sin loves company. And when all else fails, intimidation and persecution of the truth seek to drive it away from the consciousness of society. But there's also many in these world, this world who have been, who have willingly, very willingly closed their eyes to the truths of God's word. And why would that be? If we think critically, if the heavens declare the glory of God and if the invisible things of God are clearly seen, why would men shut off their senses to its truths? Well, because, as Romans chapter 1 would continue to, to tell us, if a man can successfully convince himself that there is no creator, then he can successfully convince himself that he is not under the authority of another. He is not under ultimate authority. And if he can convince himself he's not under ultimate authority, then he can convince himself he will not be ultimately held responsible for his evil. However, the proof is there for those who would see so that there is no man, woman, or comprehending child who is without excuse, the scriptures tell us. And this concept of refusing a creator in order to refuse accountability brings us to our second primary method of divine revelation. And this is conscience. The concept of a man's conscience. In Romans chapter 2, the next, cha- the, the next um, chapter in Romans, we read this as Paul is speaking specifically of the Jews and their refusal to receive Christ. It says in, in Romans 2, beginning in verse 13, For the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. Oh, excuse me. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law. These having not the law are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Paul speaks of a law. And he says that the Gentiles, when they live out the truths of God's word, having accepted Christ, when the Jews do not, bear out the law of God written on their hearts. But we understand as well that when the Bible speaks of a conscience, when the Bible speaks of the law of God, that it is awakened in the heart of man through, that the conscience of a man is awakened through the law of God. So that those who have not even fully known God's law can know of certain evils, moral evils, Through their conscience. But what's so interesting about the teaching of the conscience in Romans 2, but also in almost every other passage where it comes up, is that the Bible teaches that various aspects of the conscience are, if I may put it this way, activated by the light of God's word. That while the conscience exists in every man, those who reject the light of God's word, or live in absence of its light, even those who are believers... 
experience a general dulling of their conscience, a quenching of their conscience, a darkening of their conscience. And the deeper they get into sin and into rejection of the light, the farther and farther, the deeper, the, the, the quieter their, their conscience gets. The Bible describes this as darkness. Men and women walk in darkness when they have dulled the effectiveness of their conscience through consistent sinful behavior and rejection of the divine authority. So as God reveals himself to mankind, creation testifies of God so that all men are without excuse. But then we have this thing within us called a conscience. And this conscience is activated by the truths of God's word, but is instilled in every man so that a man has a basis for moral good, a basis of moral understanding. And this is important for us to understand that if there is a moral standard, then there must be a standard bearer. There must be a moral authority. Jesus says in John chapter 15 verse 22, If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. This is an interesting statement and one which we'll see again come up in Romans 7. Jesus is not saying here that before Jesus arrived, people could do wrong without it being sinful. And then when Jesus came and designated certain things sinful, they became sinful. He's not saying that. When he says that before he came, they had not had sin. What Jesus is saying is that before he shined the light into their hearts, they didn't know that what they were doing was sinful. Certain things are obvious. We, we would say certain things are obvious. We would say it's obvious thou shalt not murder, right? We would say that, but then our society today for the last half century has been openly justifying murder and it's getting worse and worse. It's progressing to where society is openly advocating for murder. So we would say these things are self-evident, but again, the farther a culture gets from truth... The more they reject the authority of God, the deeper they get into darkness, the less evident these things become. Why is it that prayer has to get out of schools? Why is it that the Ten Commandments have to be torn down? Because every bit of light commends itself to the conscience of man and activates his conscience. So how do we get rid of that? We we hide the light. The light of Jesus shined into the hearts of otherwise moral people. However, they had been darkened in their consciences through rejection of certain elements of God's word. And when Jesus came and he began to shine that light, things that they didn't even understand were sinful bubbled up to the surface and reflected themselves as wickedness. So that these people who thought that they were so moral when Jesus came recognized that they were in fact a self-righteous people. A people that were stuck in pride and unforgiveness and rebellion toward the true and living God. Paul would say a similar thing in Romans chapter 7. When he gives his own testimony, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, For without the law, sin was dead. 
For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Paul says, I was functioning once outside of the conviction of certain wrongs, and then when the commandment came, I realized just how evil and how wicked I was. It activated my conscience. And this is what God has given to us. Creation and conscience. That the light of the word of God shines into the hearts and the conscience is activated. But this darkness is not fully realized in unbelieving hearts. Even believers who are walking in this darkness. When you're in the darkness, it's not that you always know you're in the darkness. It's not that you always know you're grasping in darkness. There are those who are believers, still in Christ, still having the Holy Spirit indwelling, but have so effectively explained away certain truths of God's word that they too have been ushered into darkness. Consider what John would write in 1 John chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. He's writing to believers here, and he says this, He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because that darkness has blinded his eyes. There is no believer that walks around saying, I am functionally and purposefully walking in the darkness of my sin. And yet John warns that as believers, if you're hating your brother, you are walking in darkness. You are missing something of the light of the truth of God and your heart is in at least a portion darkened. And where there is darkness, there's a lack of wisdom. There's a lack of understanding. We'll come back to this in a little bit. So creation, conscience. The third primary way that God has revealed himself to the world is through the word of God. There's no need to distinguish explicitly between the word of God in written form and the word of God in flesh, Jesus Christ. Each is a direct representation of God to the world. Each is an extension one of another. The written word is 100% in agreement with the living word, Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is 100% in agreement with the written word, the Holy Scriptures. And the word of God is the final, and the Scriptures tell us, complete revelation of God to mankind. So that everything that man can know about God, his will and his work, everything that God wants us to know about God and his will and his work, is comprehended and contained in the word of God. The Scriptures are God's method of revelation to man. In Hebrews chapter 1, the first verse of Hebrews 1 tells us this in verse 2. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners, various ways, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets. In times past he spoke unto the fathers by the prophets in different times and in different ways. Sometimes it was writing, sometimes it was proclaiming, sometimes it was signs and wonders, sometimes it was just standing in the temple and and crying out. But in various ways and in various times, God spoke in times past through, through the prophets, by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. So before God used the prophets, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. This is important. Are there still prophets today? Why do we need prophets? We have the Son. We have the Son. He has spoken unto us through His Son. God used to give the word of God through the prophets. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote the very words of God which we now call the Old Testament. 
And in these last days, he's spoken unto us through his son, the teachings of Jesus, which we call the gospels and the teachings of his commissioned apostles, which we call the epistles. Now, these verses also help us to understand that God is not speaking anymore, as I mentioned, through these prophets. And as we believe a definitive qualification for an apostle, based upon the definition in the word of God, was that they had seen the risen Lord. We would expect that God is no longer speaking through apostles either. This is one of several reasons why we believe the canon of Scripture has been closed today, that God is not still adding to the revelation that He has given to mankind, that there are not still men and women that are capable of adding extra-biblical revelation to the canon. Certainly men and women can say things, and as they agree with the Scriptures, there is no conflict there. And yet many a religion, many a faith system has declared that they have somebody in their faith system who has added extra revelation and has guided the church into a new era, something which is foreign to even the promises of Scripture. But more to the point, we learn that God has spoken. And He has spoken through the prophets, through His Son, through the Word of God. And we learn this most specifically and pointedly in John 1. In John 1, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was, uh, excuse me, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. These verses tell us that the Word was with God, the Word was God, and that the Word was from the beginning. He existed from the beginning. The Word is eternal. He is ever existent. He is equal with God. We jump to verse 10 for continued clarity through verse 14. He was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own and his own received him not. But as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Even to them that believe on his name which were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor of the will of man but of God. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ, from the beginning, the Word of God. Who is this Word made flesh? It is Christ. It is the Christ. Say, Pastor, you're jumping around a lot this evening. I know. This is not how I like to preach. But this is just an application to what we talked about this morning. So I feel comfortable. I have preached an entire series in John 1. If you want to get the exposition verse by verse, you can go online and get that. One of these days I'll have enough courage to preach Romans. The rest of the gospel goes on to talk about this man, Jesus Christ. So much so that John tells us at the end of the gospel this, in John 20, verses 30 and 31. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in the book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. You want to know what John is about? John gives you a purpose statement right here. I wrote this to introduce Jesus to you. So when we go back to John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. Who's he talking about there? Well, here's the thing. The book is about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Word of God in flesh. He's the Word of God made flesh. 
Colossians chapter 2 verse 9 tells us this. For in Christ, in Him dwelleth the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All of the essence of who God is, of what God expects, is comprehended in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And if this is true, that all of who God is and all of what God expects is comprehended in the person and work of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ came to manifest that to the world, and we have these Gospels which introduce us to Jesus, and we have the Apostles which were given to us by Christ to lay the foundation for the church according to Ephesians. The Apostles and the prophets are the foundation upon which the church is built. And if this is the case, and the apostles and prophets are the foundation to introduce us to Jesus Christ and to teach us of his name, then we can be confident that God has given us everything that we need for life and godliness through his word. And we don't have to just infer this. Second Peter tells us this. Chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. The knowledge of Christ. And where is that knowledge of Christ found that gives us all things that pertain unto life and godliness? The knowledge of Christ is found through his word. On this day in Luke 11, the people asked for a sign. They wanted proof that Jesus was who he said he was. And Jesus said, no sign will be given unto this generation save one. That I will spend three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of Jonah. And we understand that man has all the proof he needs and could possibly have that Jesus is Lord and Savior. On that day, nobody left that conversation walking away from Jesus, lacking sufficient knowledge to understand who Jesus was, his identity, his power, and his work. They walked away because their eye was evil. The light that was in them was darkness. They had rejected the light. They had rejected the light. I do want to, we've considered the three primary ways that God has chosen to reveal himself to mankind, creation, conscience, and the word. There is a fourth way that I want to introduce to you before we move on. I'm pumping a lot of information to you today, um, but, but stay with me here. Historically speaking, the fourth method of revelation which God has used both among unbelievers and believers is supernatural revelation. Signs and wonders. And we dare not forget this one because throughout the scriptures we see it regularly all throughout the old testament god used signs and wonders to prove to men and women the validity the truth of his words typically speaking signs and wonders were used by the prophets not in a in and of themselves but they were used when a a prophet would say thus saith the lord and then they would do a sign and a wonder to prove the validity of that message This very thing, this is the very thing that we considered in part one, right? That Jonah and Solomon were both men who manifested divine, supernatural signs of God's truth into the hearts of others. And there's a great debate today whether or not these signs and these wonders still are something that God uses regularly in the world. Now, I've preached a message delineating our church's position on what we would call the sign gifts. It's online. If you go to the archives page, you go down past the um, all the books of the Bible, you'll see topical sermons. And one of those is called the church's position on sign gifts. We are, uh, by and large, uh, we, we would say in general, we are a church that, that, is, uh, that believes that the signs and the wonders are no longer valid as a regular use in the church today. We are cessationalists. 
However, I would like us to walk through this a little bit. In short, our understanding of the word of God is this, that God gave certain gifts to the church in the beginning of the church age. And he gave these gifts to men and women for a particular purpose at a particular time, which has now served its purpose. When the general need for those gifts were satisfied, they ceased to regularly manifest themselves in the church. So God stopped giving those gifts uh, regularly to those in the church as manifestations and began to manifest those other spiritual gifts more preeminently in the church. And I'd like us to put a couple of pieces briefly together in order to see why our church believes this and why we believe it's a sound biblical position. In Acts chapter 2 verses 14 to 21, this is Peter and he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit has just fallen upon those in the upper room. They began speaking in tongues and the people uh, in Jerusalem thought that they were drunk. They they were babbling. They didn't know what was going on. I'm throwing things around here. Um, And Okay, more batteries and such, so we'll, we'll, we'll do without that. But they were, uh, they were, were speaking in tongues, the people were confused, and Peter gets up and he gives a message. And he says, beginning in verse 14 of Acts chapter 2, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last day, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit and they shall prophesy and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath blood and fire and vapor of smoke and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and notable day of the Lord come and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Peter says these words to the multitudes in Jerusalem following the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, falling upon them on the day of Pentecost through the speaking in tongues, the tongues of fire. Peter is quoting here from Joel. He says that at the beginning, as was given in the prophecy of Joel. It's actually found in Joel 2, which tells us this. Joel says, And ye shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. And I will show wonders in heaven and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood before the great and the terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. As one reads this prophecy, two things become very apparent. First, it is given to the nation of Israel, right? We saw that at the beginning. The Lord says, this is to the nation of Israel. I am speaking of the redemption of Israel. I am speaking of the future of Israel. And it's speaking of a sign to Israel that the latter days of the earth has begun, that the day of the Lord is at hand, right? That the restoration of the nation, that everything that God had promised to the nation of Israel is at hand. Now, we are 
generally speaking, we operate under the framework of what we would call dispensationalism. We believe that there's a distinction between Israel and the church. We believe that God still has a plan for Israel. We believe that the church is a distinct entity from national Israel and that God will restore, renew his plan with national Israel in the time of the tribulation. Again, I've preached on all of this. I've got a seven or eight part series on the end times, which is on the web, and I'd encourage you to listen to it if you want to know everything that we understand about why we interpret the scriptures the way we do, why we interpret it dispensationally and such. But if I am a dispensationalist, then I understand that God still has a plan for Israel. Now, why are charismatics believing what they're believing today? In part, it's because many charismatics have rejected the differentiation between Israel and the church. And if Israel and the church are one and the same, or Israel has, and the church has become Israel, or, or however we want to describe it, depending on which part, faction you're, you're in, well then, this prophecy begins to boil over into the church. But if we see this as Israel's prophecy, and we combine this with, say, the 70 weeks that God gives to Daniel where at the 69th week Messiah is cut off and at the 70th week the tribulation begins and there's this significant gap of time which we would call the church age? Well, then things change. Because at the beginning of this prophecy, in Joel chapter 2, we see the things that Peter's talking about on that day, right? The the, the first half of this passage came to pass in Acts chapter 2. The the young men shall prophesy, the old men shall dream dreams, the, 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 the signs, the wonders... Peter says, don't be surprised at this. This is what Joel said would come in the end times. But did you catch what the second half of Joel 2 was? Uh, Wonders in heaven and earth, blood, fire, pillars of smoke, the sun shall be darkened. That's the stuff that's going to happen in the seven years of tribulation. So Joel 2 is presenting to us, as God regularly did in the Old Testament, a timeline of God's working with Israel. Skipping the church age, just like he did in the 70 weeks of Daniel. It's there in history, but it's not there in prophecy. We talked about this, again in those sermons. I can't get into all of it today. But if you're not familiar with this concept, the epochs of history, that God presents mountaintops in prophecy, and those prophets couldn't see the valleys, didn't necessarily, it wasn't, the prophecies were not in respect to time. It was giving events one after another, but you couldn't necessarily see how much time between them. So Joel 2 is prophesying of signs and wonders and then of these great wonders in heaven and earth. Peter says, this day those signs and wonders have begun. We're still waiting for the the blood and the smoke and the sun to be darkened and the great and terrible day of the Lord to begin. So there's a gap in Joel There's a gap in this prophecy, and that gap is the church age. But what do we find? We find that these the speaking in tongues was a prophetic fulfillment to initiate the end, the latter days. To show Israel that the latter days had begun. So Peter says, don't be surprised at this. Messiah has been cut off. The latter days have begun. We're now waiting for Daniel's 70th week. And this is where we find the church age. God pausing the program of Israel and beginning his work through the church. And when God reinitiates his program with Israel, he'll reinitiate it in the tribulation. And then the rest of these wonders, the earth and blood and fire and pillars of smoke and the sun be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord, that'll pick up. 
the Joel prophecy will continue. But if the prophecy is to the nation of Israel there, and it's speaking of the restoration of the nation of Israel, then we might understand and assume that these signs and wonders are for the benefit of Israel. Not necessarily for the benefit of the church. That these sign gifts that were given in the church may have been for the benefit of those Jews who were deciding whether or not God was actually working through the church. Now, there's been 2,000 years between the signs found in Joel chapter 2, verse 28 and 29, and the signs found in Joel chapter 2, verses 30 to 32, thus far. 2,000 year gap. Now, according to the book of Joel, in the connection to Acts 2, the primary purpose of these signs was to show the Jewish people that God was working and to validate to the Jewish people that the church was a part of God's plan for the last days leading up to God's deliverance of their nation. And we find another interesting teaching in 1 Corinthians 14 that helps round out our understanding of this. Paul is teaching about tongues in the church. And he says this to the church in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 18 to 22. He says, I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than ye all. Yet in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding than that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Brethren, be not children in understanding. Don't be ignorant. Don't be simple here. Howbeit in malice be children, he kind of throws that in there, but in understanding be men. In understanding be men. In the law it is written, notice he's appealing to the Old Testament law here, written to the Jews. With men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. And yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe but to them that believe not, but prophesying service not for them that believe not, but for them which believe. I don't get up here and preach on any given week for unbelievers. I get up and preach for the believers. Paul says that's what prophesying, that's what the declaration of the word of God is for. The majority of prophesying in scripture is not foretelling the future, it's foretelling the truth. So first and most obviously, he says that tongues are not meant to be assigned for believers, but to unbelievers. They do not function in the church to prove that a person is saved or to prove their spirituality or to minister to believers at all. They function in the church. They functioned in the church as a sign to unbelievers to prove that God is that that, that this church thing is of God. Now, who would be the group that would really struggle to believe that church was of God? Well, this is where Paul quoting the Old Testament comes in here. He quotes most directly from Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 49, indirectly Isaiah 28 verse 11. Isaiah 28 verse 11 is not the law, so he's not quoting that. But the same concept comes up here. Paul says, he quotes, as it is written in the law, with other lips will I speak unto this people. Who's this people? It's the Jews. It's not the Gentiles. He's writing in the law. Isaiah is prophesying to the Jewish people, to Israel. With other tongues will I speak to this people. It's not the whole world. The the people unto which God designed tongues to speak was the nation of Israel. To validate to them that the prophecy of Joel had come to pass and that the church had a part in it. 
so that anybody saying, well, here's the thing. I'm really conflicted here because God has always worked through Israel. And Jesus even said salvation is of the Jews and all of these things that have, have been, been said in the law. And now there's this other group of people and they say that they represent God. And they say that this whole, this whole thing has been turned on his head. And no, it's no longer the people of Israel that God's working through, but it's this group called the church that God is working through. And how should I believe this? And God says, look, I gave you a promise in Joel 2 that in the latter days that, that amazing things would happen. And one of the amazing things that would happen is that people would be speaking in tongues and that they'd be speaking to this people and that your young men would prophesy and your old men would dream dreams. And Peter says in Acts chapter 2, this is proof to you that what God is doing in this entity called the church is right. So join. So Jewish people become a part of this. So then we find that the sign gift of tongues, as best as I can understand it from scripture, was given to the early church as a sign to the Jews of the time, the unbelieving Jews of the time, to validate the transition between the Old Testament working through Israel and the New Testament God working through the church. Now couple this fact with another. That throughout the Old Testament, God used signs and wonders to validate his message being spoken by a man. Jesus validated his ministry with signs and wonders, did he not? The apostles validated their ministry with signs and wonders, did they not? Peter did signs and wonders. Paul did signs and wonders. The apostles did great miracles. And then they all wrote down their messages, which had been received by God. Why should we receive these messages from them? Well, because they are verified to have been from God through signs and wonders. Jesus did signs and wonders. He's from God. The apostles did signs and wonders. They are from God. And then we have, by God's grace, the preserved word of God, which means what we read on any given day, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, is the words of men who have validated their ministries through signs and wonders. Now, they may have validated it 2,000 years ago, but praise God, he preserves his word so that we still have their message. They wrote down their messages. So we don't need regular validation of God's word through signs and wonders today because we have the Bible which was written by men, validated by their uh, authority with signs and wonders 2,000 years ago. And we have that same word passed through the church, which testifies of itself. So we don't need signs and wonders, because we have the record which is true. And this is why I did not add signs and wonders as a regular means by by which God reveals itself to man in this age. Because it would seem from scripture and we could do more study of course that God when he finished completed the canon of scripture he said everything's here now so a man does not need to get up proclaim thus saith the Lord and do a bunch of miracles because the miracles are written here the men did the miracles they wrote the word and now it's preserved for you so if you want to believe the miracles believe the miracles that are testified to in this book and then believe the men that did the miracles who wrote this book But let me say one more important thing. And that's why we call ourselves cessationalists, because God does not regularly, as far as we would believe, manifest sign gifts in the church. However, may I say this? We which would believe that God does not regularly use sign gifts in the church would also, I believe, be disingenuous if we did not say 
that God can still use signs and wonders. God is perfectly within his right to still use signs and wonders. God is perfectly within his right to use whatever method he sees fit to reveal himself to mankind. But why would he? Most consistently with God's character, God would use dreams and visions, signs and wonders in cases where the word of God is not regularly available or where the word of God might actually need to be validated in in a unique way. A missionary who is contending with those witch doctors who are presenting evil powers and evil spirits might be given the privilege by God to contend with the demonic powers with signs and wonders. That would not surprise me. That would not surprise me. Countries where the word of God is being, uh, is, is being kept away from the people is not regularly available. It would not surprise me. If God uses dreams and visions, that would not surprise me. And by the way, if you're keeping up with what's happening in the Middle East, even men that I've talked to, good solid men, cessationalists, have validated that God seems to be using dreams and visions in the Muslim countries. Now, have I seen it? No. But is it beyond the scope of what God is capable of doing? No. People in areas where the word of God is hindered, Muslim nations, communist nations, these are places where it seems God supernaturally can do, he certainly can do it. Is he doing it? I'm not going to be surprised. Is it God's regular method of work in the church today, though? I think that that would would contradict what God has given us in the word today. Now, that being said, As he uses signs and wonders and such, what do those do? The same thing they've always done. Signs and wonders are not sufficient. They're not sufficient in themselves. They cannot be. The testimonies I have heard of Muslims seeing dreams and visions coming from solid, conservative, cessationless people, it's not them getting the gospel and getting saved through the vision. It's them being pointed to a church through the vision. It's them being pointed to a place to access the word of God through a vision. Now again, that's what I've heard. This is this is third hand, fourth hand stuff. Believe it, don't believe it. I'm not I'm not I'm not infallible, right? I'm just telling you. It seems to me that it's valid to understand that God can work in those ways still. But one way or another, what is God doing? He is using them to bring people to his word, which is the final and absolute authority. To bring people to the truths of the gospel. To bring people to believers. To bring people to the truth of God's word. Not to be in and of itself sufficient. God has never used signs and wonders that way. He has always used it to validate in the hearts of God's people or in the hearts of unbelievers the proclaimed word. Always. So if we are going to give, and and, uh, you know, if, if you don't want to give any... If you don't want to give any any uh, uh, wiggle room for that, that's fine. That's between you and the Lord. I have no argument with you. But if we are going to give that that leeway, that the Lord can and does work in, in the way that, that he desires and he can still work in these ways, understand that he's not going to contradict his methods and that God has always used signs and wonders to validate the proclamation of his word every time. Old Testament prophets... Jesus Christ, the apostles, the early church, that is how he operates. 
Okay. That's what we believe, and that's a little bit of why we believe it. The fourth method that God uses to reveal himself, it would be supernaturally, though we would not believe that it's a primary or a regular method used today in any form or fashion. This one thing we do know, however, coming back as we we refocus here a little bit, coming back to our truth about the revelation of God, Jesus said this in John 10, beginning in verse 24, Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. I've preached this message. You can go back and listen to it. I wish I could spend time here. This is such a neat passage. Jesus is walking in Solomon's temple. And he's walking in Solomon's temple. I can't. I've got to move on. You should study this passage. It's, it's rich. Why, why are they telling him, tell us plainly? Because of the day that Jesus is walking in Solomon's temple on. Look, look for the day that he's doing it. Do a little bit of study on what that day represents to the Jews. Or go back and listen to the message I preached on it in John 10. Jesus answered them, I told you and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me, but ye believe not. Because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. For those who are listening, for those who are seeking, for those whose eyes are open, the evidence is there. Those who don't see the evidence, don't see the evidence, as we've mentioned, either because they are unwilling, or they have closed their eyes, or they have allowed their eyes to be closed by the God of this world. We hasten on to our second point. These will not be as long. Second point. Remember, we're applying what we learned this morning from Luke 11. This is not a message to be kept, to be taken in and of itself. This is a message that is to be understood as application to this morning's teaching. God has been and will be faithful to give more light to all those who accept that which has been given. This point cannot be made any clearer than what Jesus has given us in this passage. Verse 33. No man, when he hath lighted a candle, putteth it in the secret place, neither under a bushel, but on a candlestick, that they may, that they which come in may see the light. Jesus did not come to hide himself, his Father, or God's will. What a waste that would have been. Imagine the Godhead speaking to themselves, the Trinity speaking among themselves, and God said, the Father says, So son, I'm gonna send you to die for the sins of mankind. You're going to suffer. You're going to be mocked. You're going to be shamed. You're going to be beaten. You're going to be hung in, uh, in, on the, a cross in one of the most brutal forms of public execution ever invented by mankind. In doing this, you're going to pay for the sins of all mankind so that anyone who sees the light and then comes to the light and accepts the light will be saved. Jesus says, that sounds good. I love the world so much. I want that. And then the Father says, oh, but by the way, we're going to make the light really hard to find. We're going to hide it under a bushel. We're going to make people have to uh, go looking for it. And a lot of people are going to look and look and look and then fall short. And eventually just give up in frustration. And it's only going to be for the most righteous or the most tenacious or the most clever because it's going to be hidden really well. Aren't you glad God didn't say that? Aren't you glad the Father didn't continue along that vein? Instead, He said, Son, you're going to die. You're going to give your life. You're going to perish. You're going to... Die for the sins of mankind so that anyone who sees the light and comes to the light and accepts the light will be saved. And by the way, we are going to emblazon that truth to every corner of the world. Into the heart of every man. And anyone who doesn't purposefully shut their eyes to the light, it'll shine. 
and they'll see it. And they'll have every opportunity to come to it. Aren't you glad that that's the God we serve? That is what Jesus is saying. The light has been put on a candlestick that all who come in see the light. So that Jesus would tell the people in John 12 verses 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. They say, Jesus, we would seek a sign from you. Luke 11. Well, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, demons are cast out, acknowledging Christ as Messiah. Fish obeyed, waves obeyed. There have been a few signs, haven't there? Jesus, we would seek a sign. Born of a virgin from the tribe of Judah, born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth so that he would be called a Nazarene, following a prophetic herald, affirmed by the Spirit of God in the form of a dove descending from heaven and the audible voice of the Lord coming from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. There have been a few signs. Jesus, we would seek a sign to which Jesus would tell them in John 5, verses 31 to 40. If I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnesseth of me is true. Ye said unto John, and he bear witness of the, unto the truth, but I receive not the testimony from man. Don't even count John, he says. But these things I say, that ye might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, and ye were willing for a season... To rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John. If you don't want to believe him because he's just a man, that's fine. For the works which the Father hath given me to finish, the same works I do. Bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. I've given you signs. I've done the works that my Father hath sent me to do. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. Ye have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape, and ye have not his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent, him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Jesus says, John bore, bore witness My works bear witness. The Father bears witness. The problem is not for lack of witness. The problem has never been for lack of signs. The problem has never been for lack of truth. The problem has never been for lack of light. The problem is found in that last verse. And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Ye will not come that ye might have life. Man has all the proof he needs and could possibly need. Have that Jesus is Lord and Savior. God has been and will be faithful to give more light to them which accept the light which they've been given. As man accepts the light, God's not keeping it away from them. The reason why people don't see the light is because they've rejected light. Third, men naturally seek reasons not to submit to God's truth. It's a matter of the will, isn't it? We believe that man has a will, that God has given man will, that, that God has chosen to sovereignly limit himself with respect to man's free will. Since the Garden of Eden, where the woman was deceived and yet was not ignorant of the fact that what the serpent had said was contrary to God's word, man was not deceived. Adam chose to knowingly rebel, seeing his chance to come outside of the yoke of God's will. So from Adam to Cain to the whole earth before the flood, which did what was right in their own eyes, to Canaan, to Nimrod, to Esau, to Pharaoh, 
to Israel and Judah time after time in the time of the judges and the kings, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to Herod, to many of the cities scattered, scattered throughout Asia Minor, all the way throughout history until today. The legacy of history as it relates to the revelation of God and to his word is not that men have lacked information or opportunity. The legacy of history as it relates to the revelation of God and his word is that men are unwilling to hear. And this brings us around the horn to Romans 1, right where we began. Paul says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imagination and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and to four-footed beasts and creeping things. Man creates false gods in his own image, not because he actually believes they are the true and living God, but because having rejected the light of the true and living God, they will settle for anything else as long as they can remain in their darkness. So they worship idols of materialism or sexuality or government or pseudoscience, what Paul calls science so-called in Colossians. They worship themselves through the false notions of self-esteem and self-love and self-will and self-affirmation. Or they uh, erect some false deity like in years gone by. They may not bow to a stone, but perhaps they bow to a Mary. Or perhaps they bow to Allah or to the Buddha or to their ancestors or to some venerable tradition of years gone by. Or even to aliens. And they do so not because they don't know God, but because when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Now, I hope that all of this has been informative and constructive for you as it relates to understanding the nature of sinful man and the nature of God's revelation. As Jesus Christ says, the light of the body is the eye, as he talks about the eye being evil, as he talks about the fact that they did not come unto him because their eyes were darkened, and he calls them to take heed that the light which is in them is not darkness. We've talked about how this light is darkness. We've warned ourselves about this. We've understood it. But I want to bring us about... To that question we asked this morning. I want to bring this to you. See, we don't read the Bible so that we can look around at everybody else and judge them. That's not the function of God's Word. God's Word does not exist for us to look at everybody else and point our fingers and say, see, 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 see. God's Word exists so that we can open it and be judged ourselves. Now, it's important for us to understand the nature of belief and unbelief. It's important for us to understand the nature of God's revelation in this world. But it's more important for us to understand how we relate to God's revelation in this world. We talked about the gospel this morning. I trust that many, most of us, certainly we've got a few young ones here, but apart from them, perhaps all of us, Lord willing, all of us, have accepted the revelation of Jesus Christ unto salvation. But as we, compl- as we finish our time together today, we ask this question again. Are your spiritual eyes open or shut? Jesus said, take heed that the light which is in thee be not darkness. Verse 35 of Luke 11. Take heed that you're not shutting your eyes to the light, that you are not deceived by darkness. Now, I already took you to John chapter, or 1 John 2, verses 10 and 11. To remind you that 
it's not only unbelievers that can walk in darkness and reject the light, but also believers. I take you there again. The whole book of 1 John teaches us about fellowship and warns us that even if our eyes are open to the light of the gospel, they can be closed to the truths of the scriptures so that we are also rejecting the revelation of Jesus Christ and walking in darkness, Not again, not unto damnation. Once you're saved, the Bible says that God puts you in his hand and no man can pluck you out of his hand. That which is born cannot be unborn. That which is regenerated cannot be unregenerated. That which is renewed cannot be unrenewed. If you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are in Christ. You cannot say you have eternal life if you lose it, right? It never was eternal. God lied to you. If God says you have eternal life and then you're not in heaven one day. God lied to you. Because it's not eternal if you can lose it. If I, if, if, if I have a habit and I say I've quit, I, I, I quit eating cookies and then I eat a cookie tomorrow, I never quit eating cookies. Yeah, but I've quit. And then I do it again tomorrow. I never quit. If I have eternal life and I lose it tomorrow, I never had eternal life. If I can know that I had eternal life, as 1 John says, these things I have written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. If Jesus Christ said, you may have eternal life and then you don't get it when you have, you have accepted it as God has said you should do and then you lose it so that you don't get it, God lied to you. My God is not a liar. You cannot lose your salvation. If you have eternal life, you have eternal life. If you don't have eternal life, you don't have eternal life. Okay? Lost my train of thought here. The whole book of John teaches us, however, about fellowship. The fellowship that is with God. The fellowship that is in Christ. John says these things are written that you might have fullness of joy. That you might learn how to walk in fellowship with the Lord and so have fullness of joy. So you know that the world rejects truth. You know that God has given the truth. You know that the proofs of Jesus Christ's lordship are pervasive. But are the proofs of Jesus Christ, his lordship, pervasive in your heart? When we unrepentedly reject certain truths of God's word, when we explain them away, when we ignore them, we are introducing into our lives a little area of darkness. And we know the power of darkness from our passage this evening. We know what that darkness can do to us. That after all of Jesus' prophetic fulfillments, after all of Jesus' miracles, not only did the people that saw all of these things not believe, but then they attributed them to Beelzebub. That's the power of darkness in the heart of man. That's the degree to which a man can fool himself. Don't think it can't happen to you just because you're in Christ. It can happen to you as well. We go our own way rather than God's way and then our way seems to make sense to us and God's way fades from view and we might hear it but we don't connect it to our lives because we're walking in darkness and then we're living in the deceits of sin all the while convincing ourselves that we're serving God. And we're miserable and we're unhappy and we're confused and we don't know God's will and it seems like God is silent and everything that we think God is saying isn't coming to pass and we're, we don't know why and we're not seeing fruit and we say what's going on and what's wrong with me it isn't working. God isn't working. He says that these things are supposed to happen and they're not happening. He says that if I pray in his name that I'm supposed to receive those things that I desire. He says that if we ask him, he'll receive. He hasn't sought to hide his will from me, but I don't know what it is. And I'm confused and I 
am un, uh, unhappy and I'm upset and I'm miserable. But we never stop to think that it isn't working, perhaps not because God has changed but, or, or the Bible isn't accurate, but maybe because there's an element of our lives where we're walking in darkness and it has blinded our eyes so that God is unable to fully bless us. The Jews had a lot of things right, didn't they? We're going to talk about it next week when Jesus rebukes them and he says, you tithe of all of these things, right? The mint and the anise and the cumin. These things ought ye to have done, but not to have left the others undone. The weightier matters of the law. Jesus said, it's not that you got it all wrong, but you've missed some very important things as it relates to light and to darkness. And that deception has engulfed you so that you can't see. I'm here to tell you the truth and to pull you out if you'll receive it. John gives a great example in this passage of hatred to one's brother. You're going to church, you're serving the church, you're, you're, you're doing all of the things that you understand that God has asked you to do. You're reading your Bible, you're praying, you're giving, you're doing these things, you're serving, and yet you hate your brother and you wonder why there's something wrong. Your prayers aren't being answered, you're not bearing spiritual fruit. Well, I can tell you why. Because you hate your brother and you're walking in darkness and you can't discern your way because the darkness has blinded your eyes. Maybe it's bitterness and unforgiveness, Ephesians 4.32. Maybe it's disobedience to parents or rebellion against some other authority, Hebrews 13, verse 7. 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Ephesians 6, verses 1 and 2. Maybe it's unfaithfulness in material things. It's idolatry, keeping your possessions to yourself, not yielding them to the Lord, Proverbs 3, 9 and 10. We studied it just recently, Tuesday night. But you have decided in some area of your life that you're not going to submit to the word of God. And this rejection introduces a darkness into your heart. And this darkness is obscuring your ability to function in the fullness of joy that God has designed for you. It's happened in a large scale in the church today. Back in the 60s and 70s, the church decided that divorce shouldn't matter anymore. That we're not going to preach this anymore because it's keeping people away. And that darkness has continued. This small little area of the word of God that the church decided to conveniently ignore. And now it's becoming sodomy. And now it's becoming gender dysphoria. And it's growing. The darkness is growing. But you know the seed of this darkness started 50 years ago. When they said, we don't need to worry about this divorce thing, it's, it's, it's causing people to struggle. Or, we don't need to worry about this woman pastor thing, because people are struggling with this. Doesn't matter if 1 Timothy 2 explicitly forbids it. Let's just ignore that. And the seed of this darkness has sprouted into a weed that has touched the church so that the church today is functioning in relative darkness in many areas of culture, Right? You go into many churches today and the church and the culture are one. How did that happen? How did that happen? Because there was a seed of darkness where the church said, we don't need to worry about this. We're going to ignore this part of the word of God. And that darkness found their way into the church to where if you talk to someone in the general church culture today, what we would believe about church and separation is foreign to them and threatening to them. How did this happen? How did this happen? Because a believer, many believers, allowed a darkness to infest their heart. 
So Jesus would tell, or John would write this in John chapter 1, verse 5 through 7. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. When we walk in the light, Christ is the light. We have fellowship with Christ. We can see where we're walking. We're not going to stumble. We'll be on the right path. Jesus Christ's blessings are being applied to us. We are living in fellowship with him. This is what it means to walk in the light. And if we rewind but one verse in 1 John 1, we find John's purpose, as I mentioned it already. Verse 4, And these things write we unto you, that your joy may be full. As I speak this evening, I don't believe I speak to too many people who are walking in the darkness of absolute unbelief. And so that was given to you as a mental and intellectual benefit for the body of Christ, for you to understand what's going on in the unbelievers. But as I preach to you as the body of Christ, my question to you is, are you living in fullness of joy? Fullness of joy is lived when you are walking in Christ in the light as he is in the light. And we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sins. We are living in the full power of his propitiation In the full power of his sacrifice, we have fellowship one with another. We have fellowship with Christ. Everything that we did tonight in the Lord's Supper, it's the exemplification of that. It is the Lord's Supper exemplified and amplified. It's that fellowship. It's that joy. It's that fullness. Do you have that this evening? If you don't have that this evening, may I encourage you simply to spend some time with the Lord asking why? Because it means you're not as well attached to the vine as you need to be. That the fullness of Christ's power is not flowing through you as perhaps it ought. As certainly it ought. And it's stripping you of the fullness of your joy. There might be a darkness somewhere. And if so, let's find it. Let's root it out so we can walk in that fullness of joy. Let's close in prayer.